Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The shark bait has such teeth there, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, babe, and it keeps it out of sight. So welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to Macklin's Take. Me, Andy Clark, and Matt Macklin with you in 2021 as we were through 2020. I hope everybody's had a good Christmas and New Year, as good a Christmas and New Year as you could have been expected to have, given the circumstances. We're not going to to go into them. It's not going to do anybody any good. We do have some plans for expansion for Macklin's Take coming this year and we will fill you in on those at the end of the episode so I'll just leave you agonizingly hanging in suspense until then for that for that huge news uh, you may have noticed we've got a new logo very fetching it is too Macklin doesn't think that the likenesses are great I think my likeness is absolutely fine I think his likeness pretty much looks like him I don't know what he thinks he looks like whether he thinks he's significantly better looking than that if he does then he's mistaken I think it, uh, you could be no doubt as to who that is and today we we get the new year off in in real style because we're going back to a theme we explored last summer, which is make or break, where we spoke to fighters about pivotal fights in their careers, fights which had they not won, then their careers and, and their lives really would not have been the same. And we had an array of fights, some were world title fights, we did an area title fight, English titles, Commonwealth titles, and today we do a British title. And really... This is probably the biggest and best example of a make or break that we've done because winning this British title was a mission that this fighter, our guest today, had set for himself. Uh, It was a promise that he'd made uh, to his father before his father passed away and his obsession with it bordered on being dangerous. It, It probably didn't border on being dangerous. It probably crossed that border into territory where it was dangerous Uh, But he got the job done. He got the job done um, amid emotional scenes. And his sporting story is one of the best you'll find, certainly in British sport, probably in all of of 
sport, to be honest. There's got to be a film on the way of this at some point. There just, there just has to be. Because he started life as a professional footballer and one of real ability, real repute, making his, his first team debut for Sheffield United as a, as a mere teenager, which doesn't happen that often. It's not unheard of, but it's still pretty unusual. Player of the year, I believe, when he was still a teenager, England under, under 21 international. And what people thought would happen was that he'd go on and play in the Premier League for a good 10 years uh, and probably play for England, the senior international team. That wasn't quite how things worked out. In his mid-20s, he turned to professional boxing. People thought he was absolutely off his head. They couldn't understand why he was doing it. And when he eventually came out and said that he had set himself the, the target of winning a British title, it was met with quite a lot of derision, actually. People scoffed at it. They just didn't think he could do it. Uh, and there was no, there were no rose petals thrown his way due to the fact that he was a former pro footballer. Quite the opposite, in fact. It did get coverage, um, but it was a hard road. It was a really, really hard road. And he's... He's recently been furnished with the British Empire Medal as well in the recent New Year's Honours. He hasn't quite been furnished with it yet because he hasn't got to pick it up yet, but we were just discussing it before we started. And he will get to go to Buckingham Palace for a garden party at some point, which, um, given what he used to get up to during his football playing days, would have been an extremely dangerous invitation to extend to him at that point. If you'd asked Neil Warnock whether Curtis Woodhouse, who is our guest today, should be invited to a Buckingham Palace garden party, then his answer would have been, it would have been predictable. Curtis, you're sat in the gym there. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. You gave me a bit, a bit, quite a good build-up there, didn't you? Put me under pressure. <laughs> I love a good build-up. I love a good build-up on Macklin's take. Um like I said, this is, we'll get into the journey uh, because there's just, there's just so much to talk about. But it is pretty unique what you did because other athletes have turned to boxing once a previous career has been completed. Leon, Leon McKenzie, who you know well from your time at Peterborough Football Club, he did yeah. it once his football playing days were over um, and he did well. He got to a, got to a good level, but you did it when really you should have been in the prime of your, your playing career as a, as a footballer in your mid twenties, you turned the back on the game and decided that you wanted to be a professional fighter. I mean, as I said, when, when it happened, people couldn't believe it. They thought it was a gimmick. They thought it would be one fight and out. They just didn't have any idea of the determination you had to, to pursue that career um, right up until, right up until the British title. Yeah, and I mean, you, you say there that other fighters have done it at the end of their career, and they have, and I did as well. You know, my career was done. You know, it was probably done two or three years before I actually retired. Mentally, I'd completely given up as a, as a footballer, um, even though I was only 26. But looking back now, I should have retired from football probably at 22, 23. Um, the last few years, I was just kind of just making the numbers up. My heart wasn't in it anymore. And I had no idea that I was going to go into boxing. Everyone always thinks like, oh, you must have boxed as a kid or whatever. And I, I, I hadn't, you know, I'd never boxed before in my life, but I just loved boxing. I used to watch all the big fights on the TV. And like most fans do, I used to sit there and think, mm, I can do that. Doesn't seem too hard, you know, naively. And then obviously once I retired, um, I kind of thought, what else am I going to do? And I left school with no GCSE. So, you know, I was never going to be an academic. So the only other thing I could, thought I could do was, you know, give boxing a go. Um, and I must admit, if I know what I know now, you know, I probably wouldn't have done it because 
I didn't realise how bad I was. I always thought that I could, you know, I've had a few fights, I've always done okay, but it's different having a fight when you've had four or five pints of lager and you're feeling brave. There's a lot of difference to saying to somebody, I'll see you in eight weeks' time, you go and get yourself as fit and as strong as possible and we'll have a fight and uh, let's bring the uh, TV cameras to film it as well. It's a whole different ball game. And I always say to everyone, you know, boxing and fighting are two completely different walks of life and, I always remember that one of my first spars that I had with um, a former professional boxer was about a week, two weeks into my career. And it was against Daniel Thorpe down at Dave Caldwell's gym. And at the time, Daniel Thorpe, I think, had, had a whole, over 100 losses. And I didn't know who Daniel Thorpe was. I knew Dave Caldwell trained. I didn't know Dave. It's the first time I ever met Dave as well. And I knew that Dave trained Kelbrook and Ryan Rhodes. Um, and, and a lot of other good fighters. So I assumed after I'd sparred Daniel Thorpe that Thorpe was one of the next top ones off the conveyor belt. And he absolutely punched holes in me to the, to the point of like, it was getting embarrassing. I think we did four two-minute rounds because I couldn't do any more. I was doing two, two, two minutes at the time and he absolutely tanked me. Um, and I remember getting out after and saying to Dave, blow my neck, Dave, who's that? He's good. And he, he said, I'll never forget, he broke my heart. He said, oh, that's Daniel Thorpe. He said, um, yeah, he's a good fighter, he's Thorpe, but we're, we're having a bit of trouble with the board with him at the moment because uh, he's not won a fight in over a year. And I was like, what? He says, yeah, he's not won in a year. He's, I think he's had 100 losses now. So we, he, the board are trying to take his license away. And I remember just sat on the side of the ring thinking, I mean, I had two years left on my football con contract and I've walked away and I'm, I've just been absolutely taken to school by somebody who's had 100 losses and the board trying to take his licence off him. That was a real eye-opener for me, really, of how far I had to, to go to get anywhere. Not even, I wasn't even thinking British title at that point. I was just thinking survival. Hey, 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 kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to The Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! <laughs> So, Matt, do you remember when Curtis turned pro? Do you remember the kind of the news, the news coming out? Because it was when it eventually emerged, it was it was kind of it was big news. It was really, really interesting because, like I say, no one had really done this before, and there must have been some chat around the gyms from from pro fighters amongst you know amongst trainers and fighters as to what they thought it was, whether they thought it was just a gimmick or whether whether it was for real. Yeah, no, I, I do remember it because obviously it was, it was high profile when the football player turned uh, pro in boxing. And as, and as he said there, it wasn't at the end of his football career. It, it was really where he'd have, it'd have been, I suppose you'd be guessing, he, he was approaching what should have been his prime or, or in his prime. So it was it was a big thing. But just listening to him there, I, I, remember, I just thought quite a lot of admiration really because it takes a lot of balls to just stop something you know, like like that in the foot, like you know, in a football career, which I, I'm asking is, I'm assuming he was getting well paid. It was a nice, solid job. He's got the contract, like I say, he got agents and different people. You're you, you're kind of 
insulated a little bit, aren't you? Pro- I know a few pro football men. They're insulated. They've got their agent. They've got the manager. They turn up. They don't have to think too much about life. Everything's sort of catered for them. And then boxing, you know, <laughs> it's kamikaze. It's the wild west of the sports. You know, you, yeah. you, you a lot of stuff in your own. Like you say, you, you know, it's... I mean, how many people do you know in life that are doing jobs that really they don't like? They're getting up every day and it's a grind, but... They've got the mortgage, they've got the car, they've got a certain lifestyle, and they're thinking, well, you know, it's an okay paid job or a well paid job. And but they're not happy because it's not really what they want to do, but they haven't, you know, I suppose they're thinking it every day, but they go through their whole life there. And they look back with that regret and think, oh, I wish I'd have done that differently. But they got sucked into this thing and they're chasing the money where I'm doing not and I'm, I, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking out loud, by the way, because when Curtis was talking about how he switched mid-career, I thought. You know, foot Premier League football, you know, you're going to be, there's a certain lifestyle with that, I would have thought, and everything else. And then to suddenly come in boxing where you're not, you know, you're not an Olympic gold medalist turning pro, getting a big sign on a Frank Warren or whoever was, you know, Ed. Yeah. But that, that wasn't the case. That, that's quite a, that's a brave move, man. I, well, I mean, I never, you must have had the support of your family, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, I'll never ever forget my dad around. I told my dad, obviously, since I was a young boy, all I ever wanted to be was a footballer. You know, my big hero was John Barnes. And, you know, I was born in 1980. So the best team around at the time was Liverpool. So Barnes was my hero. And, you know, I went all around the country with my dad. He used to take me to trials here, there and everywhere. And obviously, I made it as a professional footballer. And like I said, the money that, that comes with that can be crazy at times. And when I decided I was going to retire, I had no concept of money, really. Because all throughout your football career, like you said, you you're very, very sheltered. Every, everything's done for you. You know, you have an accountant that takes care of everything. All you have to do is turn up, train, and play on a Saturday. That, that's it, really. And I'll never forget my dad saying to me, he said, listen, son, he said, you get out into the real world and go and try and earn 500 quid a week. He said, it's hard work. He said, you'll be, you'll be up early in the morning. You'll be getting in late at night. So he said, don't, you know, don't underestimate how tough it is to make money. Because I, I, I left school at, um, I left school at 14 years of age, went and did an apprenticeship at Sheffield United at 16. And at 17 years of age, I made my debut. In my first contract that I signed at Sheffield United, I was earning three grand a week. Then I went to Birmingham City, we got in the Premier League and the money went crazy. So all of a sudden, you, 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 you take money for granted. You don't realise the security that, that money brings. And then, like you said, you get chucked into professional boxing where you're in the Wild West. It's bonkers. I remember my first fight, I got paid two grand. Um, and I had to pay like manager, trainer. Um, I trained 12 weeks for it, and, and you work it out, and you think, God, I'm on less than minimum wage here. Um, so it is a real, real eye opener. Um, but also, as well, like, like you said, my, my dad had, had a pub in Hull, and when I told him I was going to be a professional boxer, he said to me, Son, he said, the amount of people I get in, in here saying, like, Hull's a big rugby league area. You know, they could have been a rugby player. They could have been a footballer. They could have been a boxer. He said, it'd break my heart if you were in here in 10 years' time saying you could have been a boxer. He said, if you're going to do it, just go and do it. He said, it doesn't matter, like, anything else. You know, just follow your dream, follow your passion. And and if you make money out of it, you make money out of it. But at least the next 10 years, you're doing something you want to do. Like like you said there, Matt, there's so many people in jobs that they hate. But they haven't got the balls to ante up and go and do something else and say, you know what, I'm better than this. I'm moving away and I'm going to go and do something else. So that's the one thing, you know, and another thing, obviously winning the British title was after 10 years of hard work. But the bravest decision I ever made was actually to, to do it, to cut my ties and say, you know what, I'm done with this game. I can't play football anymore. You know, the amount of 
heartache it was causing me to play. I just knew I wanted to be out of football. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I just knew it wasn't going to be football. So I, I, deciding to quit was probably the the bravest thing that I've done. And also the best thing, when I look back now and think, God, wow, I'm so glad I did that. Because otherwise, you'd be, you wouldn't be speaking to me. Now I'd be a 40-year-old former professional footballer that kind of pissed his life away, for want of a better word. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud that I did it. And like you said, it, it did take balls, but, you know, I'm glad I did it. Well, I've read your book and uh, I reread it yesterday, actually. I had a great day yesterday. I just sat down, pulled out Box to Box, Curtis Woodhouse, uh, collaboration with Ben Durs, who did a great job on it. Uh, just ignored my phone and just just gave it another read. And it's it's, it's great. It really is. If, if, if you haven't read it, anybody listening, then uh, make sure you do, because there's there's some laugh out loud bits in it, plenty of them where you're genuinely just laughing out loud. But there's plenty others as well where you kind of, you know, it's quite... There are, there are highs and lows. Um, it's quite emotional, uh, but ultimately it's really, you know, it's just, it's, it's, an, it's an inspiring, an inspiring story. But the funny stories are what I love and they are, they are tremendous. Like some of the stories about a particular meeting with Trevor Francis, um, a team trip to Trinidad and Tobago. It's, it's absolutely hysterical. Um, it's interesting what you mentioned there, Curtis, about not loving the job anymore. And this is something you do touch on in the book, which is that people wouldn't believe it, but about probably one in three, you reckon footballers quite rapidly get to a point where it's just not really something they want to do anymore, despite how it looks, how it looks from the, from the outside. But you do say as well that when you, when you decided to box, you'd learned a lot from your footballing career and you realized just how much you could apply to boxing because you knew that with football, you had a ton of ability and you knew that on a Saturday and in training, you would always put it in, but you also knew that away from those two venues, the training pitch and the, and the stadium, you had no discipline whatsoever. With boxing, you quickly found out you didn't have all that ability you had as a footballer, but you knew you would train hard. And the other change you could make was that you had to make sure that you were disciplined away from the gym uh, and away from the ring. So, I mean, football kind of informed your approach to boxing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the best things that happened to me in boxing was that I wasn't very good. You know, that, that was a blessing for me, really, because it, it meant I really, really had to train, like, unbelievably hard just to compete, you know, in the gym. And I'm not exaggerating. You can ask people that train me. I don't think I won a round in sparring for two years. You know, not, not like come out thinking, God, I had a good spar then. I'd never had them days. You know, I didn't even win a round. I used to get punched on pillar to post. Dave used to stop sparring all the time and say, listen, get out, we, we can't, you're taking too many shots. <laughs> and this was against kids that, you know, that maybe had three fights and lost two and won one. So it was a long, long, hard road. But because I wasn't very good, I had to really, really dedicate myself. I had to do double sessions. I used to have to train as much, more than anybody else. And in football, it's a complete opposite. I was always naturally talented. You know, I could, I was the last to turn up to training and the first one to leave, you know, I was the first one in the pub, the first one in the bookies, first one in the strip clubs. That was kind of how I lived my life because I always had the natural talent to be able to perform on a Saturday. Whereas boxing, it was a complete opposite. I was, every gym I went to, I was the worst fighter in the gym. So it just mean I had to really dedicate myself. And Matt will tell you the same, you know, this, I've trained with so many fighters that are unbelievably talented that didn't put the work in. And it used to drive me mad. I used to feel like I was looking at myself in a football world, thinking, God, that must how it had been with people looking at me. Talented fighters that wouldn't train, 
that absolutely ping you all over the place for two or three rounds. But if you're doing a six and an eight round spar with them, you could really grind them down in the end because they didn't, they weren't doing it properly. They weren't living the right life. So that's how I had a lot of my wins. I got better as the rounds went on because I wasn't as good as them, but I was, I was fit and I could just keep coming. And, and, and that's how I won a lot of fights by grind, grinding people, people down. So you mentioned the debut a little bit earlier and the description of that that you give is is pretty interesting. You, you talk about sparring um, Daniel Thorpe and, and how difficult that was, and then you make that make that debut. Dean Powell gets the gets the opponent for you, and his name was Dean Mark Antonio, and you assumed that he was a Mexican, and you weren't keen. And then Dean Powell explained what kind of opponent he was. But I mean, that was. Again, that was debuts are going to be nerve wracking for anybody, but particularly in your case, because there was a big spotlight. There was a big spotlight. And there's a big spotlight, like Matt said, if you've won an Olympic gold medal and you're turning over, because that's going to be on the TV too. But as he said, you hadn't done that. Everybody's looking at you and you don't really know how you're going to perform. Yeah, definitely. Whenever I've played in front of massive crowds at football, I was never nervous at all. For the simple reason is, I, I knew I could, I was good. So it's like Olympic gold medalist. It's obviously the professional debut, but they know they're good. Otherwise, they wouldn't have won an Olympic gold medalist. But with boxing, I'd never really, I'd never sparred with eight ounce gloves on. I'd never had a fight. I'd never sparred without a head guard on. I had no idea what was going to happen once I got hit. You know, just them, it was a horrible feeling, really. And I'll never, one of the worst feelings I've ever had in my life was when I got a knock on the door from the whip. Um, put his head around the door and said, oh, Curtis, uh, two minutes you're doing your ring walk. And it just hit me. Oh, God, this is actually happening, is it? I was hoping Dean Mark Antonio wasn't going to turn up in his ear. And then I walked out and it was at, it was at um, I think, it, I can't remember where it was. It was, it was at the Grosvenor House in, in London. And it was a, a ch- one of them Deborah charity events. And it was absolutely packed. I remember what Jonathan Ross was there. And I remember walking to the ring thinking, what the hell am I doing? My legs were like jelly. I remember thinking the first time I get hit here, I am gone because I just, it was a horrible, horrible experience. But the best experience of my life, because once you've had that first one, you never get that first, ex- you never get that same feeling again. Um, yeah, and it, it was horrible. I'm, like when Dean Powell rang me up, uh, Dean said, I've got your opponent, uh, Dean Mark Antonio. I don't know if I can, can I swear on here? Yeah, swear away. Yeah, okay. So he said, I've got your opponent, Dean Mark Antonio. And I said, fucking no chance. And I'm not fighting a Mexican on my debut, Dean. No way. And he said, uh, he said he's not a Mexican. He's a fucking window cleaner from London. He said, he's the worst kid we can find. He said, if you can't beat him, he said, we, I don't know what we can do. He said, I, I had one of my kids boxing last week and he made him look like fucking Sugar Ray Leonard. So I was, I was like, all oh, right, okay. So I, I turned up and I think at, at the time, the, the rankings came out the week before my fight. And I was ranked 189th in Great Britain at welterweight out of 189. And he was ranked 187th. So it was, it was literally the donkey derby. And I remember like the, the first round went and it was nip and tuck. And, and I dropped him, I think I dropped him twice in the third round and I won by one point. So I literally scraped by against the worst kid that they could find. And it was a real humbling experience. I remember being in the dressing room after, absolutely shattered. It was four two minutes that we did, which is like the lowest you can do as a professional. But I couldn't handle it anymore. I was blowing out my ass. And he came in the dressing room after, and I was laid on the floor in like a starfish position, gasping for air. 
<laughs> and he came in and he says, oh, fuck me, you all right, son? <laughs> and he said, uh, if you ever need any sparring, give me a shout. And I remember just putting my hand on. I couldn't even talk. I was that tired. And he just walked out. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, it's going to be a long, long journey this is. <laughs> so, Matt, you're chuckling away there. Yeah. No, I couldn't stop laughing because it never, and it, I know it never will. I'll never, it'll never... I'll never not laugh when I hear someone describing that feeling about when the whip comes in and says, you've got two minutes. Because I'm laughing with the identification, you know, no matter how many fights you have, no matter how experienced you get, you'll still get that feeling, you know, fighters still get that feeling. You know, I know stakes get higher and, you know, you go through big titles and things, but it doesn't matter. You, you know, no matter how experienced you are, you still get that feeling. It's like the, the countdown and every little stage where they go, Right, let's get wrapped, get the hands wrapped. You get a little blast of them, and then you, you know that wears up a little bit. And then when they say, right, let's get gloved up, oh, you get another rejection after. <laughs> but when that whip comes in and says like five minutes, two minutes, or, or when you finish the pad work and you start putting the gown on, it starts cranking up a few gears, doesn't it? You know what I mean? That that anticipation. But I think it's that I think it's that feeling which is so horrendous in the changing rooms, which makes, you know, when you, you win a fight and everyone's like, ah, you know, there's no feeling like winning a fight. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Curtis can testify for this. Listen, Curtis, I never played professional football, but I played a lot of sport when I was younger. Usually when you're good at one sport, you, you're usually pretty good at quite a lot of sports. So, yeah. and I was good at a lot of sports and I played all these different things and was quite successful. But it was, you know, I could score a hat-trick in a cup final from a, you know, Sunday team which at the time was a big thing too. you got team spirit. But it was nothing in comparison to winning a yeah. boxing. That high is just pure elation, isn't there's it? Nothing, there's nothing close. And I, and I think what you're saying there, it, it's so true. And I think a lot of the 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 brilliant feeling is just pure relief. Relief? You spend, you spend so long <laughs> shitting yourself, don't you? <laughs> you know what I mean? For like the eight weeks, you see fighters doing the, the press conference and like, oh, he's confident. But if you actually box, you know deep down that he's blagging it in. He's Everyone's blagging it. We, we all do. We, we're, all, we're all absolutely. <laughs> and one thing that, you know, what I found crazy when I first went into boxing, so I was only a fan. I used to watch it on the TV. And then when I started to go to shows, and I used to think to myself, God, he's actually shitting himself here. And I was like, I can't believe it. And then obviously once I got in, I was like, ah, I get it now. Yeah, because I'm absolutely petrified. Everyone I boxed, I was scared, scared in the dressing room, like scared of being embarrassed, scared of losing. It wasn't so much the losing I was scared about. I was just worried about making a show of myself, you know, getting embarrassed and having everyone laughing at me. Um, that's what I was more scared about. But it's, it's a horrible feeling. But it is a feeling that keeps drawing you back in because as soon as it's done and you've won, that's the feeling you miss. That's the feeling I miss now of not competing. The, the feeling I miss is a feeling of that nervousness because I don't get that in anything, anything I do now. That horrible, sickening feeling where you're praying to God that your opponent hasn't actually turned up and this is all just one big joke and, and we're all going to, uh, it's not really going to happen. But like you said, like Matt said, as soon as you get that, open the door and the whip puts his head around the corner, you're like, you're on in two minutes. God, honestly, the blood just <laughs> drains through your body. It's horrible. It's horrible, but brilliant. Mm. 
Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. So we'll just fast forward a bit. You, you notched up a good number of, of wins and then your first defeat came against Jay Morris when you were yeah. 10 and 0. That was over in, over in Belfast. So how did you manage to keep the faith after that? I mean, how, how bad was that, that first defeat? How much did that affect you? Well, I think if you look at my record, I, I got to 9 and 0. Um, and I think with the first nine kids that I beat, they probably had a combined record of maybe 10 wins between them. Jay Morris was the first guy, really, that started punching me back. And I was like, oh, my God, what's all this about? Have you not read the script here, mate? I used to play football. You're not allowed to punch me. And Jay was rugged and a tough guy, you know, technically not great, but rough and tough. And it was that welterweight. And that was actually the fight I realized I'm not a welterweight. You know, when I was at light welter, you know, I, I was always quite physically strong at light welter. And my punches would make a, an effect on the other person. At welter, I just didn't have that same impact. And Jay Morris was, you know to put it bluntly, was just too tough for me, really. Too rugged, too tough, you know, too experienced. And he just, he bowled me to the to the ropes, bashed, beat me up a little bit. I didn't get hurt or anything like that, but he was just too rough and too too rugged. Um, so after that fight, I retired, you know. And I'll tell you what broke my heart in that fight. That was on Satanta. Remember the old Satanta days? It was on Satanta, and I'd just signed a deal with uh, David Hay. Um, and David Hay was ringside with Adam Booth. Um, and obviously them to me are like really famous people. I've been watching David Hayes since I was a kid and watching world title fights. And they were sat ringside. And I remember sat in the dressing room thinking, they think I'm shit, you know? And, and it was a real, like, like I just explained earlier, I was never scared of losing. That didn't bother me. I was never scared of getting knocked out, getting hurt. I was scared about being embarrassed. And that was a real low moment for me. So, you know, David Hay and, and Adam Booth was sat there. And I remember him thinking, they just must think I'm rubbish, wasting everybody's time here. Um, and so I retired. You know, I rang Dave up the next day and said, I'm done. I said, you know, I can't. I'm not embarrassing myself like this anymore. I'm no good. Like I said, at this point, I still not want to round in sparring. You know, I've been, get, I've been getting beat up every day in sparring. It just got to a point where I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm done here. What's the point? I, can, I think I'm only 27 at this point. I'll easily go back to football. I'll have four or five more years doing that. And, I tried it, gave it my best. I just wasn't very good. So my initial reaction was to was to jack it in um, until I pulled my head out of my ass a couple of days later. And I just thought, you know what? I can't be known as the guy that, you know, ran away from football and now I've had one defeat and I'm running away from from boxing. And again, you know what? Dean Powell was, was brilliant for me. Um, bearing in mind, you know, you look at all the fighters that Frank Warren had had, you know, massive names. I'm nobody. You know, I don't, I've never even spoke to Frank. I always used to do my dealings with Dean Powell and Dean rang me and, and I, I left um, Frank Warren at this point. So, but I'd kept in, always kept in touch with Dean and Dean rang me up and said, how are you feeling? I said, I'm just gutted Dean, you know, I'm, you know, I'm embarrassing myself doing this. And he said to me, he said, you know, Muhammad Ali lost five times, don't you? And I was like, yeah. And he says, so if he can lose five, I'm sure you can deal with losing one. You know, they, they call him the greatest that's ever done it. And he lost five times. You've lost one and you're ready to quit. And that was a real like shot in the arm for me at a time really where if no one had said anything to me, I'd have, just, I'd have called it a day. Um, 
But yeah, that was a real pick me up moment for me. And I thought, you know what, he's right. You know, I can I can deal with this. I'll bounce back, and 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 I did. And and after that fight as well, a big thing was me. I've lost now. I'd lost, so I wasn't really asked. I wasn't protecting anything. Let's just go and see how far I can go. I don't need to, you know, at that point when I first started, there's still a massive emphasis on people's O's at the time. There's not so much now. It's going away a little bit. But at that time, everyone had to be undefeated, otherwise they were rubbish. But once I'd lost, and I was rubbish anyway, I had nothing to lose. So I kind of felt like that was a real turning point for me. And, I, you know, we, we took the stabilizers off. I think after that, I started to fight better kids and get better and better. Um, I think my next fight or the one after that, I, I rematched Jay Morris and I knocked him out in two rounds. So that was a real good moment for me, um, seeing how I'd, I'd improved. And yeah, it was, it was a good moment that that first loss. And I'm still in touch with Jay now, and he, he, he's a good kid. But he beat me simply because he was tougher than me. That's just how it was. Well, you did you did ramp things up from from that point onwards, and, and we'll get into that um, in in a in a couple of minutes. But I just wonder. During the tough times, to what extent did that promise that you'd made kind of sustain you and keep you going? Just just take us through that. Just explain to people what that was, that the, the promise you made to your old man that, that, that you were going to do this. Well, I think my dad died after my third fight. Um, and my dad was always, you know, as, as a sportsman myself, um, I went all around the country chasing my dream to be a footballer. Some of my best memories of a kid of being in my dad's red Ford Cortina he used to have Otis Redding on the, on the, we used to have one of them little tape cassette things, Otis Redding, and we travelled all over the country together, me chasing my dream, and, you know, my dad was so proud, and me and my dad were really, really close, and we had a really, really strong bond, and I'll never forget one day, my sister rang me and said, where are you? And I was in Rotherham, I just finished training, she said, oh, I'm in Rotherham, why? She said, you need to get to Hull Royal Infirmary as soon as you can, dad's had a really bad stroke. Um, so I rushed to Hull Royal Infirmary. And like most lads, um, we all think our dads are indestructible. You know, my dad was like a proper, like a uh, man's man. <laughs> you know, he, he was Superman to me. I never thought, I'd never known my dad was ill. He, he, he was just always like, how whenever I touched his body, it was rock solid. He'd grafted his whole life in manual labor. So his body was just like work hard. You know, you, know, you, you touch an athlete's body and the muscle and then you touch a man's body that's been working his whole life. It's a different type of hardness. You know, my dad had that, like, manual labor toughness. He was just a man's man. And uh, so I, I just thought my dad was going to live forever, like most kids do. And I rushed to the hospital, and the nurse pulled me to the side. So I was my dad's next of kin, because his twin brother, my dad's twin brother had died five years earlier from a stroke. Um, just quickly going back, my dad was, um, my dad's actual name on his birth certificate is Bernardo's Tufik Woodhouse. And he went by the name of Bernard. But his name's Bernardo's because he was left on Bernardo's doorsteps um, a few weeks old and was then fostered by my nana and raised in the north of England with his twin brother. Um, and my, my dad's twin brother, my uncle Carson, died five years before of a stroke. So when I went to the hospital, the nurse said to me, um, your dad's had a stroke um, and there's nothing, there's nothing we can really do at the moment. And I thought in my head that that just meant he's had a stroke, but he's going to be okay. Because after my Uncle Carson, he had his first stroke and then had a second massive one that killed him. But he recovered from his first one. I thought she was telling me that the same had, had happened with my dad. Um, 
so I was like, all oh, right, okay, what does that mean? We, you, does he have to go on medication? And, and she said, oh, oh no, um, he's had a stroke, a bleed on his brain. It's too big for us to operate. He, he, he'll die within the next hour. And I just couldn't believe it. Um, and he, and he, my dad's eyes were still open. I remember just thanking him for everything. And I promised him literally about five minutes before he died that I'd, that I'd win the British title. You know, I was crying my eyes out. And, and I promised him that. And I, to answer your question, you know, it was it was something that haunted me for years, you know, because like I said, my dad always did everything that he said he was going to do for me. And the last thing I said to my dad was going to end up a lie. I was so far off winning the British title. And it haunted me for ages. And, you know, sometimes I think, God, I wish I'd never made that promise. You know, I had so many sleepless nights. And every time I lost, I just felt like a, a, such a, a failure because I'd not been able to keep that promise. So, yeah, it, 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 was, it was tough. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. I look at the run of fights you had after after that initial defeat against Jay Morris. As you say, you you rematched and, and you beat him. You beat Steffi Ball. Uh, there was a defeat of Peter McDonough over eight rounds. Uh, and then you had a run of fights that were tough fights and all good fights as well. And a big one in there, a real big one, was Frankie Gavin. That was July 2011. And you lost on a split over 12 rounds in a fight against a former world amateur champion, 10-0, the Frank Warren's kind of golden child at the time, a fight that nobody thought you had any chance in whatsoever. That must have been a big one for you in terms of raising your your confidence because Gavin was everything that you were describing earlier on, you and Matt, the you know, a stellar amateur who turned over with a massive fanfare, pressure on him, but he knew he had this huge amount of ability. And, yeah. I mean, you very nearly turned him over. Yeah, a fight that I, that I thought I won. You know, at the end of, when the bell went at the end of the fight, I thought I won that. It wasn't until I watched it back that I, that I realised that he'd probably just nicked it. And I think just experience cost me that fight. The, the rounds I won, I won big. Um, but the tight rounds he nicked because he just knew a little bit more. You know, he had great feet, Frankie. He, he couldn't, he, he wasn't a big puncher. He hit quite hard to the body. I was peeing blood for three days after that fight. He separated one of my, um, one of, I think it was on my left-hand side, my rib. I was peeing blood for a few days after. But yeah, Frankie was good. He, he, he was fast. But I knew he didn't live right. You, you, you know when I said to you about, obviously, me not living right as a footballer? And I knew he he was the same. I know, I know a lot of people in in Birmingham, and the, you know, I knew he was out on the scene. I think he was living in Manchester at the time, but I knew he didn't live right. So I knew if I could set a, a fast pace, not get caught early. So I think he was ten and zero, and had eight stoppages at the time, um, just for overwhelming people and being a class above more than anything. But I knew if I could get through the early rounds, set a fast pace, I knew I had a chance of getting him down the stretch. I was actually surprised early on. If you actually watch the fight back for the first two or three rounds, I, I dominated it with my jab, um, marked his face up. 
I've got really long arms. People don't realise how long my arms are. I can only touch my ankles. So I've always had a really good jab. Um, and I think that was the one thing that surprised Frankie more than anything. He, even when I speak to him now, he said, you know, you've got one of the best jabs um, of people that have boxed. But because of my inexperience and because of all the disrespect I got in the build-up, I just wanted to knock his head off. I wanted to knock him clean out. Whereas if I'd have just been disciplined and thought, I'm going to stay behind my jab and pick my shots, I could have won that fight on points. But ego and inexperience made me get greedy. And the more you get greedy against the Frankie Gavin, you let your hands go, you throw two, threes and fours. He finds holes and picks you, picks you and steps around you. You know, if I could have that time back again, I'd have thrown loads less punches and not given him a chance to counter. But I didn't know what I was doing. Like I said, it was only my, what, 10th, 11th, 12th fight. I think he'd have probably 250 amateur fights. But... That was a real moment for me when I, the first time I was sat in the dressing room, and I really started to believe that, hey, I could maybe do something here. But even after that fight, you know, one thing that I've never felt I ever got in any of my career was any sort of credit or respect. It was all about how Frankie had not prepared properly, how this, that. No one actually said, hey, bloody hell, Kurtz, when I've boxed well there, it was always about, you know, what Frankie didn't do. So I, I felt I felt a little bit um, disrespected after, after that fight, which in the grand scheme of things, was good. It kept my ego. It kept me thinking, right, I'll show them. I'll get another big win and see what I'm going to say about that type of thing. So, but yeah, it was a good fight. Great night for me at the Echo Arena. Was it at the Echo Arena? It was on the John Murray... Um, Kevin Mitchell. Kevin Mitchell of the card, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because Paul Smith got married that day and I was at, obviously at Paul Smith's wedding. But we've dipped off from the wedding to come and watch the uh, the fight. We missed, I missed your one with Frankie. That, I wanted to see that, but we missed that. Uh, but we got there for the, the, the Kevin Mitchell and um, John Murray fight. <laughs> Great fight, that one, yeah. Yeah, wicked. Yeah, that was a cracking fight. I love John Murray. I think he's tough. You know, another like massively underrated fighter, John Murray. And probably had the same way. He didn't kind of live his life right. You know, he, think he, he had a patch for probably a couple of years where he was a right handful, especially down at lightweight. He was big, strong, powerful, walked through a lot of kids. Um, probably his lifestyle caught up with him but yeah I used to love watching John Murray fight he was class yeah he was tough as nails John tough as yeah. nails uh, trained so hard but absolute lunatic outside <laughs> of the gym you know yeah. he didn't live the life at all but yeah. he was uh, but, but in the gym he trained like as hard as anyone you've ever seen like a machine call him Murray the machine trained so hard as hard as anyone but yeah. just yeah but you know I, you know what Matt that was a similar to me in, in football you know, when the whistle went on match day, I ran my socks off, I'd tackle, I'd head it, I'd fight for every ball. In training, I'd always train hard. You know, it was never a problem for me when, the, when I was on the grass. It was, but bearing in mind, we started training at half 10 and we were done for half 12. From half 12 till four in the morning, anything could be happening in my life. So it, it was never an issue once I was actually doing what I wanted, what I was there to do. It was the rest of it that was difficult for me. We finished training at half 12. The first race is normally on the bookies for half one. Quick shower, I'm in. You know, pubs, pubs are decent. Little afternoon session in the pub. You then end up in legs 11. <laughs> before you know Very it, well. you're in the... <laughs> before you know it, you're in the casino and then you're struggling to get up the next morning for training. So it's, it's easily done. No, it, it, it's a tough one. And it's the same with boxing. You know, you, you know you, 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 the training is so intense, but it's only for a couple of hours a day, really. And yeah. then... You know, there's a long, long old day after that. And, you know, listen, Frankie Gavin trained hard in the gym. Frankie Gavin yeah. gym, trained as hard as anyone, again. But it's what he did outside of the gym that 
was his undoing. Um, yeah. You know, John Murray, the same. Listen, don't get me wrong, I'm not preaching here. I wasn't the best delivers in between fights, but when I was in training, I was in training and I was militant, but it was the in-between. But Frankie, Gavin, John Murray, they, they, they could go off the rails two weeks before a fight. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I always think as well, you know, because yourself obviously was a, a great amateur, had a great pro career, I always find as well with, with any sport, the ones that are most naturally gifted are the ones that don't live right because they know they can get away with certain things. You know, and, and I always think it's sometimes a gift and a curse to have that natural talent, isn't it? Because it's sometimes so hard to live right when you know deep down, well, I don't really have to for this fight. I can get away with a little bit. And then one thing leads to another. Same as making weight. You know, I'll never forget the first time I jumped in a bath to make 10 stone. Uh, before, I used to always, you know, do my weight spot on to drop on 10 stone. And then someone said to me, have you ever thought about getting in the bath? I got in the bath and dropped four or five pounds. All of a sudden, I was like, oh, my God, this is the future. And then that four or five pound went to seven pound, then to eight pound. Then I was taking 11 off in the bath. You know, it's just a slippery, slippery road. I should have just stayed where I was and actually done the diet correctly instead of little shortcuts thinking I'm okay because I've got the security of the bath. <laughs> I, I, but I can guarantee when you're in that bath doing the 11 pounds, you're thinking I'm never doing this again. <laughs> It's horrible, isn't it? I mean, you, you feel like a crackhead. You just oh, you can't move. Horrible. It's disgusting. The worst one I ever had was the Derek Matthews one. Um, I trained with John Pegg for that fight, and I, it's the best training camp, the strongest and fittest I've ever been. I was My body fat must have been 5%. I was sparring, doing all my sparring at about 10 stone 7. Is a good In between 10 7 and 10 10, I find is my optimum weight, where I'm strong, powerful, fast and fit. And I've got still got punch resistance. So I did all my training at there. Now I remember like the week before the fight, I was about 10, 6, 10, 5, which was lower than what I was when I was making 10 stones. So I thought I'm in a great position. I've, ne I've never done 9 9 before. And as soon as I dipped, started dipping below 10 3, it was a struggle. I woke up the morning of the weigh and I think I was 10 stone and I had to get down to 9 9. And it, it, that was the worst time I've ever with making the weight and getting down to 9-9 absolutely crippled me. I remember going down to the weigh and one of the boxing border control uh, members looked at me and a double tick and said, fucking hell, are you all right? <laughs> and at this time I'm thinking, God, I hope people don't realise I've struggled. I didn't realise until he'd seen me, the look on his face. But yeah, weight making so big, isn't it? I think another thing that people outside of boxing don't, don't realise, obviously with, you'll know, with fighting at 11 stone, probably wasn't your optimum weight and when I went down to 9-9, it was, it was just out of desperation to get a title shot. That's why I got really absolutely crippled my body. I remember that fight. I was at that fight. And you could see that Derry Matthews, he just, there was nothing there. There was nothing there at all, was there? He just, no. he just kind of walked through you, really. And I remember at the end of the fight, you, you couldn't really remember how it had finished. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, that was, you hate to hear that. I remember thinking that was that was dangerous what he did there, that dropping that extra weight. We knew why you'd done it because just to trace things through a little bit more, after that Frankie Gavin defeat, um, you got stopped by Dale Miles and he was a lot bigger than you on the night, although that wasn't yeah. at, at, at lightweight. You beat Dave Ryan, won an English title, lost against Shane Singleton, which was which was by all accounts a pretty scandalous decision. I didn't see the fight and and a big blow because you'd made real progress up to that point and and as English champion you would have been touching distance away from from a British title shot and that 
really was what brought about the kind of desperate move to yeah. to box Derry Matthews down at down at nine stone nine. I mean, it was yeah, a rough, I mean, it was a rough kind of passage you had there. Yeah, so I, I boxed. Um, so after I lost to Frankie Gavin, I did I box. I, I I then got stopped by Dale Miles, wasn't it? Yeah. So after I boxed Frankie Gavin, I I got an eliminator for the British title. There was two eliminator fights going on. There, there was me against Dale Miles, and there was uh, uh, Dave Ryan against uh, Adi Alanwar. They were, they were the two kind of semi-finals, and then the final eliminator got to fight down Hamilton. So I, I boxed Dale Miles, and up until this point, I'd never even been hurt in a fight or even inspiring. I'd, I'd always been, you know, quite durable. And he hit me in the first round, and I've, I've ne- I can't explain how it felt. You know, I'd, I'm, I'm from a place in, in Driffield, where I'm from. It's like a market town. So sometimes in some of our fields, there's cows in that. Uh, walking around so they put electric wire around these cow fences and as a kid you, you dare each other to touch it when you touch it you get that jolt through your body I'll never forget you hit me in the first round and it took me back to being a 10 year old kid touching that cow wire it put an unbelievable shock right through my body and I remember thinking what the fuck was that and every time he hit me he hurt like shook me right down to my boots I've never had that feeling ever before in my life and you know what? It's something that I laugh at now, but in the weigh-in, he's massive, Dale Miles. You're just next to him. Oh, he's huge. He's about six foot. I remember seeing him thinking, how's he going to make the weight? He's massive. Then I seen him at the weigh-in, and he looked horrendous. He looked worse than I did. Derry Matthews looked like a smackhead, and it filled me full of courage. <laughs> you know, I got, I got brave all of a sudden. I went up to him and said, I'm going to fucking break you in half. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and went, like, laugh. And I remember walking away thinking, fucking hell, do you know something I don't? <laughs> the next day I turned up to the fight and, he, and I was in the home corner. So I came out second. It was at the Magna. I don't know if you've ever been to the Magna, but it's quite a long entrance to get there. And he was in the, the corner. And I remember my music came on. I stood there and I'm looking at the ring and he's just, I don't know if you can see me here, but I'll try and stand up and do it. But he was stood in the opposite corner. You see, and he was just bouncing like this. And I'll never forget thinking, who the fuck's that over there? <laughs> and the closer I got to the ring, the bigger he got. And he, w- I got in there and he was massive. And I remember thinking, I can no wonder he was laughing at me yesterday. And he, when he hurt me in the first round, let's say I've never been hurt, and it ignited my ego. And it made me, like, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in front of my, all my home fans. So I just ended up having a shootout with him. And basically I had a shootout with someone who had a machine gun and I had a fucking water pistol. Every time he hit me, I could, it was a horrible feeling. I got a double fracture in my cheekbone in the first round, and my nose, I could see under my eye. I remember sat in, in, in my corner, and my corner man was looking at me, and I knew something was wrong. I could see my thing, and my, my face felt like, I can't explain, I don't know if you've ever had a fracture in your cheekbone, but it felt like my face was floating. It was a weird, weird feeling. Every time he hit me, I was in absolute agony. And um when he knocked me out in the fifth round, I've never been so happy for a fight to end in my life because every time he hit me, it was all, he had he had bricks in his gloves. I remember the, the fight gloves we had on, these horrible Everlast. They, they were like fucking marigolds. I remember warming up in the dressing room thinking, God, when I hit him, I'm going to take his head off. And then when he was hitting me with them Everlast on, they were, they were vile. And I didn't even... I got in the dressing room after... Um, 
and I said, and I didn't even realize that I've been stopped. And Ryan Rhodes said to me, you're all right. I said, yeah. I said, what happened? He said, oh, the ref stopped it in the fifth round. And I, I, I'm not, I went like that. Yes. I thought, I'd, I thought I'd done him. I thought I'd knocked him out. And Ryan said, oh, no, mate. Still concussed. Pardon? Yeah, I was con- really, yeah, yeah, really bad. I got taken to hospital after. Um, and you know what? There's a, when I went to sleep that night in the hotel, it was the first time I've ever been scared. I was thinking, if I go to sleep, I'm not sure I'm going to wake up. It, it, I, I remember just lay, laid in bed, worried, because my, I was so, it was horrible feeling. I, I was obviously in a lot of pain with my nose and my cheekbone, but I was worried about my health. I was really worried that I wasn't going to wake up that next day. Um, that was a brutal fight. It's on YouTube somewhere, and yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a great fight to be involved in, and really taught me so much. Every time after that, if I ever got hurt before, if I never got hurt after that fight, I'd just go for a walk or I'd tie him up. But first time he hurt me, I thought the cheeky bastard. <laughs> Let's have it then. And I ended up having a shootout with someone who just punched so much harder than me. Um, and then he went on to box. Um, so Adil, I think he boxed Adil Amwa in the final eliminator. Adil Amwa completely outboxed him. Then Adil Amwa boxed Darren Hamilton, and Darren Hamilton stopped Adil Anwa. So I was out. I, I was out of it. So my next fight was then Dave Ryan. Dave Ryan's tough. You know, I think that fight was probably twelve weeks after the Dale Miles fight. If I'd have had my time again, I'd have probably had a bit more of a rest and had one in between, but I went straight into the Dave Ryan fight, which was another, like, unbelievable war. Um, I've not fully recovered um, from the Dale Miles fight, and I must, I, I've got to be honest, I don't know if, if, if Matt's the same, but after I got stopped by Dale Miles, my punch resistance was never the same after that, and I, I don't know whether it's from making weight or whatever, but every time after that Dale Miles fight, every time I got hit clean, I got wobbled. Even in sparring, I got wobbled. And it, I'd, I've never, ever been... No one had ever put a dent in me before that day. But ever since he stopped me, my punch resistance had never been the same. Um, so I went into the Dave Ryan fight. And again, it was a tough, tough, tough fight. Horrible. Dave's such a tough man. Um, technically not brilliant, but strong and decent puncher. And I dropped him in the third round really heavily. And I ended up beating him by, by a point to win the English title. So brilliant. I thought, I'm going to maybe get an opportunity to fight for the British. Um, I just need to defend it against Shane Singleton. Boxed him over in Manchester. Felt like I'd won every single round and lost it on a split. So I got stripped of my English title. And then I'm in no man's land then. And I've not got a big promoter behind me. I'm not a massive ticket seller. You know, I sell good worth of tickets, but not like the where you're filling arenas up. So I'm in no man's land. I'm desperate. So that, that took about me going down to lightweight because I think at the time Dave Caldwell was, was managing Derry Matthews. Um, so I said to Dave, I said, I'd, I'd fight Derry. That'd be a great fight. And Dave said, you'll never make nine stone nine. So I was struggling like mad to make 10 stone. And I said, Dave, if you make it for a title, I'll fucking make nine stone four if I have to. So in the end, they end up making that fight. And yeah, it was out of desperation because I had nowhere else to go. It's just amazing how these things kind of work out in boxing because at that point it was difficult to see what what would or really could happen. And I know I think after that you you gave it a bit of thought as to whether you would as to whether you would keep going, but you did keep going. Uh, picked up a couple of wins that you were expected to get against Louis Van Pooch, Pucci, uh, who we see often, Eric Malik, and then 
and then from nowhere, uh, and this is this is often what happens in boxing. From nowhere, yeah. this this opportunity to box Darren Hamilton came about, and all of a sudden, this thing that you'd been focusing on, this thing that you'd, as you said, almost begun regretting saying because it put you under so much pressure and filled you with such dread the, the thought of not being able to achieve it winning a british title it became it became a real possibility i mean could you believe it you know you get the call from dave and you must have i mean if i were you i probably would have struggled to believe it you know he's not going to wind you up about something as important as that but you were that close through a legitimate route if you like becoming english champion and then that disappeared and then all of a sudden from nowhere there you are yeah, and um, you know the just to to go back quickly, the Louis Van Pooch fight was my comeback fight after Derry Matthews. I think I boxed up at like middleweight, um, and that was kind of my comeback fight. And I ended up having fourteen stitches in my left eye from that fight. You know, we we it, the ref said it was a punch, and Pooch still said it was a punch, but he's definitely a clash of heads. Um, so I ended up getting my eye cut really bad, and um, and yeah, and then I, f- I fought. Uh, Malek was it? Yeah, and, and then uh, and and Dave rang me up. I'll never forget. Dave said to me, "He sat down." So, I'm, you know, when your manager says that, it's, it's normally good news. Um, so I said, "Yeah, why? What's up?" He said, um, "Darren Hamilton's just signed for Matchroom, and he won the British title, defended it twice outright. They kind of want his coming out party, um, his next fight. And you know what's crazy, really, Luke Campbell." winning the Olympic gold medal is a massive part of me winning the British title. Because if Luke hadn't won the gold medal, Matchroom wouldn't have come to Hull, which means Darren Hamilton's not coming to Hull to fight me on a non-TV show. So because Luke Campbell brought Matchroom television, they had Luke at the top of the bill, and then they needed fillers, really. So that's why myself, people like Tommy Coyle, we then start to get opportunities on Sky TV off the back of Luke Campbell, basically. So Matrium had just signed down Hamilton. Like I said, he'd won the British title, defended it twice outright. He wanted his big coming out party to be against someone like me who kind of suited his style, come forward, look at outbox me, look great, uh, wins the British title outright and moves on. So I was kind of the fall guy for that, but I didn't care. It's an opportunity for me. So by fate, by luck, and you know the craziest thing about that is the fight was at the Hull Ice Arena. Don't if it, you, you probably won't know Hull, but it is probably a thirty-second walk away from the Hull Royal Infirmary where my dad died. So when this fight got, when Dave told me about this fight, you know certain nights in your life where you think it's all aligned. Behind. Yeah, it's all. It's just crazy things have happened for this situation to become available. So it kind of made me feel like I'm going to win this. I know I am. If I boxed down Hamilton 100 times, 99 times he'd beat me. You know, he just had a horrible style, long, he's awkward, he's tough, he's got good feet, he's irky-jerky. He's just a nightmare to box. That's why he beat the people he, he, he did. If you look at Darren Hamilton's record, he's beat a hell of a lot better fighters than, than me. But I just knew this one night was going to be my night. And it had to be. You know, I had no... This was it for me. If I lost this... I'd have kind of gone off into the sunset, a gallant effort. Didn't he do well? Won the English title. And he actually fought for a British title. Didn't he do well? But I didn't want that to be my story. And I, I, I knew this night was going to be my night. I really did. I knew I was going to beat him. Um, and yeah, it's a bit it was, like, uh, 
I'm just thinking when you're saying that, it's a bit like in the book. I don't know if you've read the book, The Alchemist, when it says, when you go after something with all your heart, the whole universe conspires to make it happen. Yeah, you know, love you it. After yeah. All your heart, yeah, you, you went after it no matter what. Yeah, I did. And you know what? I, I, I emptied the tank chasing it. You know, if I retired and I didn't win the British title, I'd be sat here now just so proud of my efforts because I gave absolutely everything. And you're right, you know what? I think I bloody deserved it because I gave so much to the game. I deserved getting that little break just to get the opportunity to box him. I think I was ranked 10th in, in Britain at the time. And I think when you're the champion, you can fight him on in the top 10. So I literally just sneaked in that last little bit. And like you say, you know, it all just seemed to fit nice. It all seemed to fit perfect. Um, and I must admit, by the time I boxed down Hamilton, I think I was past my best. Like I said, my punch resistance was nowhere near what it used to be. And because of someone with my style, which was kind of a pressure fighter, you have to take shots. And I was getting hurt every single fight. I got wobbled in pretty much every fight after the after the Dale Miles fight. So I was kind of probably past my best by the time I got to Darren Hamilton. But certain nights in there, everyone's got that one night that you look back in your career and think, that was me at my very, very best. Yeah, and what I'm, you might- what you might have lost in punch resistance and youth, you might have gained in experience and know-how. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. You know, you look back at my early career, loads of my fights were crash, bang, wallop. You know, I normally got them, nailed them or hurt them and stopped them. But there wasn't much technique to what was going on. But, you know, once you start sparring with Kel Brook, Ryan Rhodes, Ricky Burns, you can't jump in them and go crash, bang, wallop because they'll absolutely level you. You'll get knocked out. So... It made me have to adjust my style a little bit. And I be, I learned how to survive in sparring. I used, to, I used to spar like a journeyman when I was going in against Kel Brook or Ryan Rhodes. I can't go and compete with them. So I had to learn how to get through the rounds. So the experience, again, that I, that I built up over this time, being overmatched against so many fighters that were better than me, having to learn on the job. You know, I knew I could deal with someone like Darren Hamilton because he wasn't, he wasn't one of them elite fighters. You know, and I had a, I went down and trained with Adam Booth um, for that fight. It was it was brilliant, and I, I sparred Andy Lee in the in the build up. I think me and Andy probably did about thirty rounds together, and Andy went orthodox for me. He was a southpaw, but he, he went orthodox for me to spar with him to kind of replicate Darren Hamilton's irky jerky style and good jab. Um, and I got through them rounds. I remember Andy Lee hit me with a body shot. He nearly took my spleen out. It was awful. He could punch really hard as well. But I got through them rounds. And I remember in the build-up, all I was kind of telling myself is, Darren Hamilton is not Andy Lee. You know what I mean? So I had to kind of build myself up to be able to get through it. And yeah, I had a great training camp. The fittest I've ever been. You know, and I didn't have to take too much off in the bath. I don't think I took anything off in the bath. I was ready. And I, and I knew he was going to get the best version of me available on the night. And I think it's probably the best I've ever boxed. Um, but it still came down to even me boxing at my very best. It was nip and tuck all the way. And them last three rounds, probably, it just came down to nuts and guts. And I just had to bite my gum shield, get on his chest and fucking bang away for dear life. I remember Adam Booth said to me, he said, there's, there's two rounds. No, he said to me, there's, there's um, three rounds left and you're losing by two. He said, you've got to win these last three rounds, otherwise you've blown it. And that kind of made, it put airs on the back of my neck on the night. And I remember going out and just completely emptied the tank. And, and again, when the bell went, I, th- I, thought I, I thought I'd got it. I wonder what it was like during fight week, though, because 
you, you said you had a great camp and, and that's obviously going to, as much as you can do, keep the doubt and the, and the fear under control. But when it's as important as this, when it's as big for you personally as this was, it almost becomes this kind of mythical event boxing for the title. Something yeah. that you never really thought was going to happen after that after that defeat against Derry Matthews. Then all of a sudden it's happening. You get the date, but it's quite a long way away yet. So you concentrate on training and then bit by bit, it gets closer and closer and closer and it becomes more and more real. I mean, how do you manage to keep the nerves, the doubt, the fear, the dread almost, all these things that you've spoken about in the last few minutes under control when you get nearer and nearer fight night? You know, it's it's a great question. No one's ever actually asked me that before, but (laughs) leading up to the fight, the last couple of days was, was... really stressful because all that kept going through my mind is what if I don't win? What if I don't win? This is, this is it here. Like I said, I knew I wasn't going to get another chance. I'm never going to get a chance to fight for the British title again. If I don't win, then everything over these last nine years has been a lie. It's been, I've, I've not done it. I said I was going to do it and I've not done it. I promised my dad I was going to do it and I've not done it. You've lost. There's no... There's, <laughs> There's, there's no plan B. This is it. I'm all in. And um, it, was, it was a worrying feeling, a nervous feeling, but it also propelled me to victory. You know, when you're all in, you've got nothing out. This is it. This is me tonight. You're getting everything I've got. It, in fact, you get that little extra 15% that got me over the line. That's how I won by one point. Um, I think I won by one point on one judge's card and two points on another judge's card and the other, the other person gave it to Darren Hamilton. So it was close. I had to, you know, give everything. And without probably being under that massive pressure, can you find that extra 15%? Sometimes you, you can't until you need to. And I needed to. So, yeah, it's a great question, really. Matt, it's one of the things that makes boxing different to, to other sports, one of the many things, which is that in not many other sports do you have nights like this where it is all or nothing. It is make or break. Either you win and, and it could be a contentious decision and you might feel like you deserve to get it and you don't get it uh, or you or you lose. And that could really be it because you know that other opportunities aren't going to come your way. If you're playing tennis or golf or something like that, then you might lose a big final, but you still got your tour card. You can still compete in the next event. It might be a kind of slow decline from there on, but it's not this one cataclysmic event where it's just shit or bust because the, the pressure, the pressure is is just immense. Yeah, I think that's why the pressure is so immense, and I think that's why the the apprehension and the nerves are so great as well. Because it's like you can be right up here in boxing, and then one loss, and you can be so far from there in the next fight. You know, you can literally it could it could take you years to get back to where you were. You know, or you could get back in, in in another fight, but there's no guarantee of that. You know what I mean? You could be literally swerved for a bit, or you know, just it, it, it's. I think that's what makes it so nerve wracking. You know, like you say, you could you, you could play in football. Curtis can speak more than me. You could have a shocker on a Saturday. You could have a midweek game, and you could be man of the match, and it's just forgotten about. It's it's just everyone everyone has bad days. You know, you could you can prepare properly. You can think you've done everything right. right. And maybe you were trying too hard on that particular day and it just didn't happen for you. But you know what? We're playing in a couple of days. doesn't happen like that in boxing. You've got, you know, could be six months before you fight again. could be longer. You know, you could be, could be meant to be boxing in six months, then you get injured and then it's put back another six. It's just, I think that's what makes it so difficult as well, is that it can, uh, after a loss, 
it can take you so long to get back to where you were and how hard you'd work to get to that point. And how suddenly you're miles away again. It's, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's brutal boxing. Is. Don't get me wrong. We're, you know, Curtis talking about how the elation of how you feel and that. And like you say, I think some of that is relief. But, or maybe a loss of it is relief. Yeah. But it's like, it's, the, it's literally the agony and the ecstasy, isn't it? There ain't much yeah. in between. It's agony or ecstasy. And you know what as well? How harshly you get judged in, in boxing. How harshly you get labelled. How harshly you get told you're finished. And, and, and people quickly get fed up with you. You get called a bum, journeyman, you're shit, you're this, you're that. The boxing fraternity is probably the harshest one in sport. You know, and that's another thing. And I knew that night was... It didn't matter what had gone on in my career... I was always going to be remembered for that one night. And what happened within them 12 rounds was how I was going to be remembered forever. Um, no one ever talks about any other fight that I've ever had apart from the Darren Hamilton one. So everything that's going through my mind is, what if I get done in a round? Like I so said, I know my punch resistance isn't quite there. So I've got that in the back of my mind. And I know it's not. And you know what? Fighters are the first ones to know little things like that. You know, when you get hurt in sparring, I've, I've got hurt loads of times in sparring. The kid I'm sparring has got no idea. Now my legs have gone a bit here. Fighters know. We know straight away. We're fighters, but we're clever. We read people. You know, you stand half a metre from someone, okay, and trying to punch each other. You, you're so bright and in tuned into everything in your body. And I know my punch resistance ain't quite there. So I've got that thing, what if I get done in a round here? If he hits me on the button, I could go. That's how I'm going to be remembered. No one will remember the journey. Everyone, yeah, well, he fought for the British title. He got chinned in a couple of rounds. He was shit. And that, that's it, full stop. So that type of pressure, they're all the things, again, that, that, uh, that play in your mind that keep you up at night. But also, they're the things that drive you over the line. They're the things that make you really, really dig down. It's not, it's not money. You know when the, when the bell goes and you're fighting? You, know, you don't think about money. You don't even think about the titles. You think about your own personal pride is I want to win this. It's about winning. No one no no one cares how much you've been paid. No one cares. Everyone cares did you win or did you lose? And that's what you care about deep down. I fought my whole career for peanuts. I got nine grand for the Derry Matthews fight. I got ten grand to fight Darren Hamilton. I got fourteen grand to fight Frankie Gavin. I got four grand to fight Dale Miles. I fought for peanuts my whole life. My whole career, I fought for peanuts. Never earned good money ever. But I was there for something other than money. I was there to fulfill a promise and to see what I had about me. Did I have, did I have about me what I thought I had about me? And the answer in the end was, yeah, I did. And that's what I fought for. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't so much about the titles. It was just about proving to myself that I had something in me that I thought I did. Curtis. You wouldn't have done it for money. It's too hard no. to do for money. Do you know what I mean? It's got to be something a lot more than money to drive you through the life of being a buck. So it's too it's too hard to do for just money. I know it's easy people to see the Pacquiao's and the Mayo's earning millions. I mean, ah, oh, well, I'd do it for that. No, no, but you wouldn't have done the twenty years he took to get there. Do you know what yeah. I mean? For any so that that Manny Pacquiao, Floyd Mayweather, all these people, they weren't driven on by money. It was yeah. to be. It was to win. It was to be a winner. As you said there, it weren't the money that drove you on. You were making money in football. That's not what burnt your uh, candle. That, that wasn't yeah. that, that. You know what I mean? That's not where the desire come from, was it? No. 
And it, it's such a great point, like you said, about people think when you when you talk to people about boxing, you know, they go Mike Tyson, Ricky Hatton, uh, Manny Pacquiao, Floyd Mayweather, and they all think that we're all earning the same money. They don't realise that there's a massive gulf from them to the rest of us. Most people in boxing don't earn good money. But like you said, you, you, it's not about the money. Fighting people, we're, we're a different breed of fighting people. The money is fantastic. And once a big money fight, I always say anyone that makes good money out of boxing, you know, I tip my hat to them because it's such a tough, tough game. You know, so if you can get in there and make as much money as you can, brilliant. There's no one ha more happier than, than me for you. But it ain't about the money. Money can't make you spar. You know, when you're tired, you've done your weights and you're running and then you have to spar again in the evening. It's something that we've got inside us. And a lot of it is ego. You know, we've got big egos, fighters. You know, we want to be the best. And that's what drives you on, wanting to be the best and having a big ego. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Well, as you say, the the if you could win one of those titles, one of those British boxing border control sanction titles, whether it's area, national, or or the pinnacle, which is the British title, any big recognised title, it's just something you've got forever. Uh, and I sometimes say at the end of fights, you know, I, I might say Curtis Woodhouse is a new British champion and there will never be another day in his life when that isn't true. Because it's yeah. just such an amazing thing to be able to say. And, and, and it answers all questions. We were talking to Nate Campbell on, on this Make or Break series over the summer. And he won the unified titles against Juan Diaz. Went on a bit too long. Had fights that he shouldn't really have had. Picked up defeats he shouldn't really have, have picked up. And, and he said that every now and again, in, in those days, people, you'd have to be brave to say this to him, but people would say to him, so what does it feel like being a trial horse and that kind of thing? And he just turned around and just said, I wouldn't know. I'm the champ. Yeah. And that, yeah. that, that's what it's about, isn't it? That really is what it's about. Well, whenever my, my name's mentioned now, um, in anything, if the a news article about me, it always says, Kurtz Woodhouse, former British Light Welterweight Champion. That, that, that comes. It doesn't say Kurtz Woodhouse, um, former boxer who got beat by blah, 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 blah. It just says Kurtz Woodhouse, former British Light Welterweight Champion. And like I said, that'll follow me around forever. And that's the, 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 the biggest thing for me. Because even now, when I look at the list of light welterweight champions, and my name's on that list, it just stands out like a sore thumb. There's so many great fighters that have won that title. And then you get to my name. And so in 100 years' time, when people are looking through the list and you get to my name, there'll be a story behind it. You know, that's him. Can you remember him? He, he, did, he played football, blah, blah, blah. Ended up winning the British title. So I think the story will stand the test of time. Because I don't, it'll never be done again. I don't think anyone will ever, will ever do that again. Because most people, like like Matt said, have not got the balls to throw their hat in the ring and say, "Listen, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go for it. You can laugh at me all you want, but I'm stick." Look at all the stick, you know, Freddie Flintoff got, and then look at all all the stick Rio Ferdinand got. He didn't even have a fight, Rio, and he's getting pulled from pillar to post. That was kind of the same thing that I had to go through. Um, so yeah, it's tough, but. It is what it is, and you know. No, it's like, it, I don't know what quote it is. It's 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 a famous one where the seller says it's not, it's not the people in the crowd or the arena. You know, it's talking about basically being daring to be great, putting yourself yeah. in boxing is the ultimate in that because it's one man against another man. And you said yeah. you, were, you were scared about being embarrassed, but and and and, and, I know, and everyone knows what that fear of being humiliated, embarrassed, and disappointed is like. But you you risked it. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. You had the balls, you had the bottle to take the chance. Yeah, I might get embarrassed, but I'm prepared to risk it. I'm backing yeah. myself. That's guts. That takes yeah. guts to do that. And I love that quote. I don't know what it is, but I know I know which one you mean about it's it's not about the man in the crowd, it's about the yeah. man actually in there doing it. I love it. Yeah, it's a great quote, and it's so true because there's another quote as well, which I love that it, it's the worry of failure kills more dreams than anything else. You know, if you always worry about, well, what might go wrong if I do this, this, and this, well, we won't do it. You know, I'm sure in your big fights, you're not thinking about what might happen. Otherwise, you're not going to get in there. You think about the glory. Well, what could happen? And like I said, no matter what happens, I had the balls to do it, to, to, to roll the dice. And, you know, Andy made a great point, and I haven't even touched on this, um, but you need so much support from your family. You know, it, it, it's unbelievable. You need them to base, basically, I'm saying, listen, I'm, see all that money we've got. I'm gambling it all to chase a dream in something I'm not going to earn anything out of. But I'm gambling it because this is what I want to do in my life. So you need a family that's going to be behind you that says, yeah, I, I've got your back. You know, we'll have tough times, um, but I've, I've got your back. We're going to go through it. And that's a massive, massive thing. You know, without that support network of, your loved ones, it's, it makes it even harder. And I was very, very lucky that that, that I had that. And that's um, that's something that you don't really see in the fighters, that the people behind the scenes that may be cooking all your food so you can make the weight, that have to put up with your mood swings when you're starving and you're trying to drop on the weight and you're flying off the handle. You, lo you, you, you lose. You know, whenever I lost, I used to go on the piss for like four days, you know, just disappear off the face of the earth and feel sorry for myself. That side of things that, people don't see so you need a massive supporting network next year to help you through it well they're sharing the journey with you aren't they do you know what i mean and they're probably yeah. thinking six months into the boxing what the fuck did you pick this road for <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I remember i remember my wife after we won the british title she she's uh she, we, we went out it was a day after we had a massive party and uh, she said to me she says I'm so glad we've been able to come out after this fight because all the big fights, you normally lose and we can't go out. <laughs> so, so I'm glad we've been able to get out and celebrate. So, yeah, it is. It, it, it's a massive part of it, really, that you don't, you know, like I said, sometimes we've all got big egos fighters and we think it's all about us. But when you look back, you know, the sacrifices that everybody else has made um, plays a huge part as well. You know, I think the only failure in life is not trying yeah, that's the only failure. Yeah, a, a million, a million percent. And there'll, there'll be a time when you walked into the gym for the first time, and I bet you're shitting yourself. Imagine if you hadn't walked in. What would you be doing now? Where would your life be now? You know, everybody. When your name comes up, the first thing I always think when my when my name comes up, you think boxing. The first thing people say is a top of our British title fight. I'm not sure how you feel about your career, but as soon as I think about your fight with Jamie Moore, straight away. Matt Macklin, you two are going to be linked together forever. So your name's always going to be mentioned when it comes to boxing. And I think that's an amazing thing. There's so many people go through life that have never dared do anything. And, and, and the, 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 the kind of, the, the linked with nothing because they haven't dared do anything. So I, I think, you know, sports people in any sport that have the balls to, to say, you know what, I'm going for this. I'm going to have a go. You know, you deserve a lot more credit than, than what we get on social media and things like that. What do you see your, your main fight as, Matt? Where, where, where do you, the one where you think? Someone, someone sent, I don't know where, someone sent me a tweet, uh, uh, sorry, a WhatsApp thing yesterday, and it was a screenshot 
of um, Dan Raphael's scorecard and, and Lennox Lewis's scorecard when I fought Felix Sturm and they had me winning 117, 111, nine rounds to three. And you know the way in a fight, you're, you're having a million thoughts, but there's certain part, there's certain thoughts at certain points of the fight that you remember clear as day. Yeah. Remember getting up onto my feet, about to walk out for the last round against Felix Sturm. And I remember thinking to myself, all you got to do is stay on your feet here. Don't do anything stupid. You know what I mean? In my own head. Yeah. Fucking how wrong was I? You know, on the scoreboard. Yeah. I, I thought I was thought I was pissing it. Um, listen, the more fight was, a, even though I lost the fight and technically and tactically I didn't box great, I, my, my will to win, I was proud of the desire that I showed. And I suppose... You know, you, you you gave up on a football career where you're earning good money to pursue a boxing career, which was a tough, hard, lonely road. It was up and down. But I think ultimately, when you wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror, you have to see the man that you think you are. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I think the, the more fight, even though I lost the fight, I, I, I was as um, I was as tough and as proud and I had as big enough as high as I thought I did. It, it ticked that box for me. I proved that to myself. Yeah, and I think that's one one of them fights, and there's not many fights around where, like, no one even remembers who won and lost. <laughs> it was one of them. You just kind of watch it like, oh, what the fuck? Like, on the phone, are you fucking watching this fight? What is going on here? It was one it's of mental. them. It, yeah, it was, it was one of those fights, wasn't it? But, yeah, I mean, do, do you ever think, like, sometimes I do think to myself, God, if I haven't, like, I won, I won on a split decision. I knew the fight that Sean Hammond was close. Uh, but you know, like I said, your Felix Stern fight, I think you did probably win it by four good four or five rounds. Do you ever think sometimes what would have happened if you had have won that? Yeah, I think if I'd have won it, I, I would have had an immediate rematch because I was tied in. Whether or not I'd have got the decision again or beat him even more, I think I'd have beat him even more clear in the rematch because I'd kind of proven myself that I was at the level. Do you know what I mean? I think I would have beat him yeah. more convincingly if we boxed again. Um, I don't know, you know, on the back of that, I suppose I, I, I signed with Ludi Bello, I got the Sergio Martinez fight. But I was probably, you know, I was a pro probably what, 10, 11 years at that point. You know, there was a lot of. I, I wish I could have got the Pavlik fight around 2008. That's yeah. when I think I was in my, my, my. I think that's when I would have been my best. But yeah. listen, no regrets. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, I know that quote that you were referring to. It's Theodore Roosevelt, and I've just found it. So I'll, uh, I'll actually. I seen you scrolling things. through your phone when we were talking. <laughs> I beat you to it. I beat you to it. So I'll just read it out because it actually speaks to exactly what the two of you have just been talking about. So this is this is from the big man, Teddy Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions? Who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement? And who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly? so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Mm. That's it, isn't it? That's what it's about. That's that. what you've been talking about. He nails yeah. it. Absolutely. I love the bit at the end, like, I love the bit at the end about where he says, like, the ones that don't know victory or defeat, you know, to never have gone to them highs or lows. 
you know, it's a brilliant feeling sometimes when you lose because you get to find out what you're all about. What am I about? Like, so like, imagine, imagine if I'd have retired after um, my first loss. Where would I be now? What would I think about myself now? You know, like you said, when you wake up in the morning, you're brushing your teeth, you're looking in the mirror. What would I think about that person that looked back at me if I had just said, you know what, I'm done. I'm, I, I can't handle it. I wouldn't be that same person. But now I, I'm, I've got a great job at the minute. I go into schools speaking about, you know, my life and about adversity and how to get through it. You can't do that if you haven't, if you haven't lived, you know, the life that you're talking about. So, yeah, the bit at the end where on about, you know, neither knows victory or defeat, I think it's brilliant. Because they're, they're, they're two really, really hard emotions to deal with. And, you know, if you can get through them, you're on your way to being a man, aren't you? And so did you pay a trip to the to the graveside with the with that beautiful Lonsdale belt in the aftermath of, of that fight, of the win against Hamilton? Yeah, I went the next day. Um, I'm not a religious person. But it was a real, um, it was a really emotional morning for me, to be honest. And it felt like a massive, it's over. I, 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 I've done it, you know. And without going, you know, too much into kind of mental health things and things like that, I had a lot of dark moments where I didn't think it was going to happen. And it keeps you up late at night. And you, um, and you worry you worry about kind of what, how, how it's going to pan out. So to, to go to my dad's graveside the day after with the belt to kind of show him that, hey, dad, I've managed it, um, was a real, felt like a massive weight had been lifted off my shoulders and I felt like I could sleep at night now and I can get on with the rest of my life with doing whatever I want to do. But I didn't feel I could move on um, until I'd won that British title. So that's why sometimes I think, God, I'm so glad I won it because... God knows where I'd be or what place I'd be in now if I didn't manage to win it. So it felt like a huge weight had been lifted off my shoulders. And it had been smiling down on you, full of pride. Yeah, man, definitely. Okay, well, we'll, we'll let you go. We'll let you go. You've been very generous with your time. You did go on to defend it against Willie Lim, but that was more for financial reasons than anything else. Then two or three years after that, you 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 did make a a brief comeback. These are things that, that fighters generally do. It's, it's a hard trap to avoid falling into, but just bring everybody up. Sorry. Do you know what it was with me with the, with the comeback? I went up to 16 stone seven. I was, I ballooned up in weight and I, I set off a new program and I called it Sherman clump to buddy love. So I just wanted to get back in condition. And all of a sudden I got back in, I got to about 11 stone and someone said to me, why don't you fight again? And I was like, yeah, Okay, I'm gonna. So I ended up having a couple more fights, and I ended up at actually. Um, I was fight, gonna fight John Wayne Hibbert in an eliminator for the Commonwealth title. Gloved up in the dressing room, ready to come out. The fight before us was the Scott Westgarth one, um, who obviously died in the fight. So me, me and um, John Wayne Hibbert were on next, and he passed away um, just before us. So our fight was 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 cancelled, and, and I never fought again after that. And neither did John Wayne Hibbert. And I think that, that left a real, poof. you know, when you kind of feel like I've dodged a few bullets here, that'll, uh, it's time for me to, to, to walk away. So that was, that was a moment where I just thought, yeah, what am I doing this for? You, you, you know what I mean? I didn't really have a reason to do it anymore. I was just doing it to, for the sake of doing it. But yeah, when, when Scott Westcap died, that was, um, 
yeah, that was a moment where I thought, no, that, that, that'll do for me, thanks. So just bring everybody up to date with what, what you're up to at the minute. I see you've got your Gainsborough Trinity tracksuit top on there, although you've been, you know, you've, you've been managing football teams for quite a while now, coaching as well. I mean, what's... Yeah. Well, I went away and did my coaching badges um, over in Belfast. So I did my UEFA B and my UEFA A licence, which basically gives me the qualifications to, to work in, in the football league. Um, and that's what I want to do moving forward is be a, a football manager in, in the football league. So I'm kind of on that journey now, um, which is probably just as hard as boxing. The, the, the amount of length of time that football managers get given. But yeah, I'm, I'm on that journey now. And again, something I enjoy. I take so much into my football that I learned in boxing, you, you know, and I, I find myself saying so many things that trainers used to say to me and just learning how to deal with people and preparation as well, you know, how to prepare for a game and, just things like that. So I think having the two sports will, will, will give me a great chance of being successful as, as, as a manager. So I love it. I enjoy it. And I'm, 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 I'm very fortunate. Not many fighters, once they retire, kind of find a, a happy place. And this is probably, at 40 years of age, the happiest I've ever been in my life. So I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a very fortunate position. Well, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. So we'll leave it there. Curtis, thanks very much for your time. This has been, this has been tremendous fun. And uh, I strongly urge anybody who hasn't given a read of, of Box to Box uh, to do it because, as I said, you will, you will be rolling around on the floor at times. Others you'll be, others you might find you've got something in your eye. You know, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those books it really is. And uh, make sure you have a good time when you eventually get down to Buckingham Palace to, uh, well to collect that British Empire medal from uh, Her Majesty the Queen. She's met a lot of people, the Queen, but you don't meet people like Curtis Woodhouse every day. I think that's a, <laughs> I think that's a fair statement. So I did say at the start that we'll update you with um, a kind of expansion plan for Macklin's take for the coming year. So what we're going to do is this, this podcast is going to stay exactly the same, this kind of feature episode, if you like. But we're also going to head on to YouTube and every week do a kind of 20, 25 minute um look at the boxing news basically me and matt just picking out things of particular interest to us we'll keep that nice and snappy that'll go up on youtube the, the podcast will go on youtube as well um thanks to jake mestel and chris wells for the for the for the very fancy new logo and we'll just see how things pick up from there uh, big fight weeks we'll probably do more than more than one feature podcast like we have done in the past, but we're just looking to branch out a little bit with everything. So we're back now for 2021. Uh, we're not going anywhere. Uh, thanks for sticking with us as always. Here's to a, a prosperous year. I know it doesn't really feel like one at the minute, but uh, at some point soon, things do have to start improving. We all really do need to believe that. Um, and in the meantime, before we speak to you again, have a good week. Yes, that line falls on the right, babe, not that Maggie's back in Podcast Network.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.